Welcome to the live recording of the panel discussion at the third annual AGEN, recorded on June 4, 2022, with the topic, Elder Wisdom, an Overlooked Resource for Trying Times. Panelists are lifelong changemakers from the San Francisco Bay Area who shared lessons learned from a lifelong practice of challenging long-held practices and policies for the benefit of the health of our communities. At Home with Growing Older inspires, educates, and connects people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. So my name is Sasha Joffrey, um, and I'll just briefly introduce myself before um, we start this panel. So I'm a sociologist at Stanford. I'm a graduate student there, and um, and Susie and I know each other from some work that we've done with um, an organization called Encore that really celebrates intergenerational connection. And in my research, what I study is the way that we order our social world by social categories. So whenever we meet a new person, we start putting them into buckets. We put them into gender categories, into racial categories, into age categories. And the way that we treat the person we have just met, it depends on how we've placed them. And that this, these types of interactions just grow and grow and grow. They aggregate to then how we have you know, these giant things like residential segregation and these humongous inequalities and things like ageism and racism and sexism and discrimination, but also you know, other things that are joyful too. It's not all bad, but I'm really interested in the ways that we, we do that and the consequences of that ordering. Um, and specifically, one of the pieces that I've thought a lot about is age and how we think about people of different ages. Um, and before we get started, I just want to um, describe one concept from my research that I found very helpful in bringing to conversations like this, which starts from the observation that, that everybody here is going to be familiar with, which is that people can be old and young in many different ways. So people can be chronologically old or young, but there's so many other ways to be old and young. You know, there's things we think about bodies, there's things we think about minds, there's things we think about the way that we're interacting in institutions, where you are in your career, all these things, ways that we place people as old or young that are separate from just chronology. And I found this a helpful concept because it makes me think about how age itself is really about more than just chronology. And I think this is very valuable when we're thinking about um, how people of different ages and different generations are interacting and how you can sort of find similarities and differences between people um, of different chronological ages, but maybe similar across other dimensions. Um, so that's a very brief <laughs> thing about my research, but I'm so excited to be moderating this panel. I feel so honored to be even just at the same table as these three remarkable women. Um, and I hope you have looked at the program book for a little bit more about some of their accomplishments, but just very briefly, I'll introduce them. So on the right, we have Amy Meyer, um, who created the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. So you can thank her for Point Reyes and Land's End and more. And next we have Jenny Chin Hansen, who is a leader of California and national efforts, policy efforts to improve care for older adults. Um, and she's the past president of AARP and also the CEO of the American Geriatrics Society. 
And then next to me, we have Sandy Mori, who is a social justice activist and community leader um, and nonprofit creator dedicated to improving the well-being of Japanese American communities in the Bay Area. And so, so one of the themes that um, of our day today is about relationships and community and the, and community. And the first question I'd like to hear all of your thoughts on, we can start with Amy and then go this way, is whether you could share a memory of a time that you found strength in community and what did that community look like? The community is a community in San Francisco which has a long history since 1870, really, of caring for and protecting its gorgeous environment. And whenever I had to bring people into the project of getting the GGNRA, as we call it, uh, people came to help, rushed to help, asked to help, because they believed in it. Jenny, do you want to go next? Sure, thank you. I have two, two quick memories. One is when I was in college. I grew up in Boston, uh, Boston's Chinatown to be specific. And, um, but I went to a Jesuit school for college. And uh, it was during the time I was in school that some of the incredible violence that had occurred. And uh, I was there at school during the, uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And so the school just automatically mobilized and we all marched from our campus into downtown Boston. And it was just one of those moments I'd never been uh, among such a large group, never been part of a protest or, or, or a group movement like that. And I just was uh, literally moved as well as, as physically impressed with the fact that we all came together. And this was a traditionally Irish Catholic school. And, um, and it was just amazing to see everybody just so hurt, so incensed uh, together in terms of that period of history. Thank you. Uh, in the Japanese American community, there are only three Japantowns left in America, here in San Francisco, in LA, and in San Jose. And we, together as a community, uh, try to maintain and preserve and promote economic development and promote culture and heritage. Uh, and it is a, the sense of community is based on our heritage, at the same time moving forward and looking at the next generations, the next three or four generations, we have a lot of young people who are biracial, triracial, and that is part of assimilation. But what we try to do is to teach each child the heritage that they have, that they are proud of, one, two, or three heritage that they have, because I think this is the way of the world. And uh, we feel strongly that people, the younger people, have got to know the history, but then moving forward, you can do a lot of things with many diverse communities. 
So my, my next question is about thinking about sort of the, the cycles of social progress. And sometimes it feels like we're not making progress towards social justice. And I know that the same cultural conversations come up again and again, sometimes for decades or centuries, whether it's about abortion or gun control or racial exclusion, environmental safety, et cetera. And, but it's also so important to recognize and celebrate the progress that we have made. And I'm wondering, for, for each of the three of you, what is something in our world that you have seen change for the better? We could go in the same order. So Amy, if you want to start. What I have seen over working in this field for 50 years has been, though it started high, it's gotten higher, an awareness of how very much our world has to be thought of in a sense of, of being healthy. And this came from our chairman, uh, long deceased uh, Edgar Weyburn, who was a doctor uh, and a former president of the Sierra Club, where he thought of the world as something that ought to be kept in good health. Um, and the idea that this idea has become part of our everyday conversation, part of it is we've been forced into by climate change and the effects that ripple through every piece of land and every bit of air we breathe in the different seasons of the year. So what I see is this awareness starting high in the Bay Area but growing higher and getting better in many parts of the country. Um, when it comes to thinking about uh, the progress that we've made, the, the topic area that I've ended up with, I actually my studies in graduate school were on adolescent health, but I've been obviously in the field of aging and geriatrics uh, almost all my career. And um, the recognition of humanism and dignity at that time in my public health work th that led me to think about older individuals. So when you carry the torch for older people as one of those major isms that we still have now and more, I realized that two things. One, that the, the desire to learn about the life course is not as, um, was not as enthusiastically embraced uh, 50 years ago. Um, but as people age, as our legislators age, as we have family caregiving uh, responsibilities, uh, we recognize that the, fa the factor of dementia, uh, if we live so long and to be lucky that over 85, easily 40% of us will be touched by this. So the content of age and Health about health about it has now taken greater interest because it affects not just policy but our time, our money, our hopes and wishes for the future. So that there's been a change, and it's because people have had that personal experiential component. So then I think our hearts are more open to this. But what's interesting, I think our mindsets, our frameworks, are still. Um, tight uh, for this and part of it is the sense of fear of what that means and a lot of the 
um, stigma that actually comes with this. And so the fact that Dr. Chodos in San Francisco is doing the 80 over 80, the ability to not, um, not I'm going to say a word that may be sensitive, infantilize this, but to recognize it with the, the fullness and humanism and the texture of what we have. I think there's slow progress, and, and I think it's you know beginning to grow, but it takes all of us to do that work and be careful about the, the words we use and, and just listen to ourselves choose the words that we do. So that kind of awareness is something I see some progress with. So um, when it comes to progress, and because I've spent most of my uh, adult career life uh, in the field of aging, I do see the um, increase of alternatives as we age, whether you want to age in place, in your own home, in your own apartment, whether you want to be in a facility and have the support services there, uh, or whether you want to be in a, a, a life care facility where you will be taking care of the rest of your life. There are different options that you could look at. And obviously, the key factor here is the cost. And now in our society, the cost is pretty exorbitant um, if you go into any of these facilities. And so I think that's going to be the challenge for the future because not everybody can afford to be in those facilities where the cost is high, uh, especially if it's a life care facility where you're taking care of for the rest of your life. Uh, so I think the whole issue of aging in place, aging in your own apartment and aging in your own home, especially if you can afford to keep your home. And see, this is issue all has to do with economics. And there are so many seniors who are at poverty level, literally poverty level. And our, our country has to deal with this issue. And because I think that we have so many elected officials who may be older, but they don't have to worry about their income. They don't have to worry about health care access. So I do feel that our country as a nation needs to pay more attention to have a little bit more equity here. There's got to be, and it's all, it's all about money, folks. And, it's, and so it's easy to say, but very difficult policy changes that have to take place. And they've got, we've got to continue to advocate for these kinds of things, because it's going to be hard. It is not going to be easy. And I just see that this is a huge challenge for the future of our country. Thank you all three for that. I feel like it's, yeah, I love all of you have so much clarity about, yeah, about sort of what has changed and what needs to change and be able to see both the bigger cultural pieces, but also the very practical sort of what, you know, what actually is the next step. I think that, yeah, I so appreciate it. I'm trying to learn that as a sociologist, but I feel like maybe I should just talk with the three of you more. Um, okay, so next I want to actually ask Sandy you a question which is when you were much younger, how did you think about the elders around you in your community? And what lessons can people young or old take from your experience with intergenerational connection or misconnection? Well, when I was younger, uh, 
my grandparents lived with me when I was a child. And so I was very close to my grandparents. And therefore, that's one of the impetus that led me to found an organization that um, creates service capacity to seniors. Uh, and so the word kimochi in Japanese means feelings, which is feelings between grandparents and grandchildren, uh, or feelings between people in general. But that word is significant because it really is the philosophy that has to happen within the organization from the top down, from the top, whether it be the board of directors, the executive director, administrative staff, direct service staff, it has to be in all levels of the organization, that feeling. Um, and, and it's hard because it's a, it's a philosophy that is part of a, a value system that you have to instill at a younger age. And so what, what we've tried to do, and it's hard, you have to teach it at a very early age when children are young. And as they get older, they see the value of taking care of their elderly, being sure that their grandparents and eventually their parents are going to be taken care of. Um, and I see this value becoming less um, be given attention to. So here again, this is part of our society's way of looking at aging. And um, I think all the different uh, philosophies about changing the way how we look at aging is all very important. And I think as we move forward, we have to continue to make sure that everybody can talk about it. It's not easy to talk about aging. A lot of people don't want to talk about aging because it affects themselves because everyone gets older. I mean, we are all getting older. But it's important to have discussions with pe within your family, within your community, of all ages. And I think that whole idea of getting older is scary for some people. And so it, it should, we should make it so that it's not scary, so that people know there's a support system and a community around them that will give them the support as they continue to age. Thank you, Sandy. I love that, especially given my own research on the sort of how the cultural meanings of age and how we think about age as being such an important piece of the way that then we act towards people of different ages. Um, so thank you for that. Okay, Jenny, I have a question for you now, which is there are so many ways for progress to happen. And what are some of the avenues that you have found to be particularly impactful for change um, and also meaningful to you as a person? Gosh, there, there are so, so many different ways to engage, but I think my work history conveys this understanding that changing policy is real important. And uh, the policy of poverty, for example, making sure that people have a, you know, we're talking about living wage now, but then just the living amount that is important to have a dignified life at any age. So the sense of, of, of communalness is important. But policy is very powerful. But policy by itself, if it's not implemented, doesn't mean a whole lot. So it really takes the vision and then the hard work of thinking what would be good, say, making sure people had income, to making sure there are programs and money that follow that, and then a way to 
implement that program. So it, it's you know, just doing great work at the community. We touch certain lives. But then we know that that universal issue is bigger. And, and so in some ways, that's how I started. I started with community work. And then you realize this is not a, an unusual situation, that people needed good care as they got more frail. And then so you start looking up, like, where's the decision come from? So you go from the community level to policy. And then for those who make policy, making sure they understand that to pull that stuff off, you really need a whole different, you have a team of people, an infrastructure, and the sustainability to this. So um, advocacy is so crucial, but advocacy is only part of the ecosystem of making things happen so that it touches real lives. Thank you, Jenny. Okay, next I have a question for Amy, last on down the line. So part of your work has included a focus on equity and access, and, and that is sort of celebrating and prioritizing access to services or places and well-being for people of different ages, different genders, different abilities, et cetera. And could you say more about why this is an important goal for you in the context that you've worked in? This is a very important context because we started off as uh, a group of, you know, 30s, 40s people. Uh, and over time, 50 years, what I've realized is we don't carry this down to the next generation. Uh, in the words of a, an activist from Chinatown years ago, uh, she said, if you don't reach us in our, in our places and bring us into what you're doing, the next generation will pave over Yosemite. Mm -hmm. So this has been a, a, something that has been growing. First of all, we had to advocate, then we had to get legislation, and then we had to implement the legislation. All right, this has gone on for a number of years. But what we have is a pro are programs that are done by the National Park Service, by the Golden Gate National uh, Park, uh, National Recreation Areas Parks Conservancy, and uh, then the organizations like anything from the Sierra Club uh, to the California Native Plant Society, whatever, to engage people in becoming, to become stakeholders in the future of this park. Because it's our 50th anniversary this year, we are focusing on making sure that the staff people who have come in, you know, over the last 50 years, there are only three of us left from the original uh, group that worked on this park. One is a long-standing Park Service employee. If any of you know the park, her name is Mia Monroe. If uh, we have Becky Evans from the Sierra Club and me. And that's, we are there. The others have either moved or died. And so what we're trying to do is bring this to the younger people at, in the, uh, 
in 2006, I wrote a book about this uh, called New Guardians for the Golden Gate. The old guardians were the army, the new guardians uh, are the park service. The book just most inconveniently went out of print. Uh, and it's a UC Press book, and if any of you are interested, you should try Amazon. Uh, the uh, idea is that the story of our campaign needed to be told so that the next generation and generations could make use of it. Uh, and so this is the kind of carry-through to say nothing of the programs of the Presidio Trust and the Parks Conservancy that all reach to everybody across the city, whether through the San Francisco Public Library or programs in different neighborhoods or bringing the neighborhoods into the parks so that young people will become a part of and, and take a, have, have a, a care and a concern that what they see will last. Thank you, Amy. I actually want to follow up on something you were just talking about, and curious to hear all the panelists' thought on, thoughts on that, which is really about the role of, of intergenerational connection within social movements, and specifically sort of what older activists and younger activists might be able to bring to the table and learn from each other. And all of you have both been activists for many, many years, so have seen it from different sides of different ages, and also worked with people of different ages. Um, so I'm really curious to hear all of your Thoughts. We could start in any order. Whoever has thoughts on that first. Well, in fact, you know, it's interesting that you raise that because this is something that we're dealing with right now uh, in today's age uh, with the younger generation understanding one, the younger generation has to know the history. You got to have the history first and learn what happened in the past. But with that, that will then help them to understand what needs to be done in the future. And you know, that concept is, is not something that necessarily young people already accept readily. Uh, because there's a certain resistance about, well, you know, I already know, you know, and I, I'm smart enough to know all this stuff. You know, so there's an attitude thing, you know. So we have to try to break through that attitude. And, um, and, and really, in my opinion, we have to gain their trust. Because they're because they are young, and they're also impatient, and they don't want to work hard necessarily, and they don't want to struggle. Well, I'm sorry, you got to do all that to get things done. Uh, it doesn't take just overnight to get things done, and you have to be willing to put the time in. You know, you can't do it. You know, like within a weekend or two weeks. I got to see you here next year. You know, not just not just short term, but it's. It's a, it's a very hard concept uh, to try to put in their minds and for them to, to embrace it. Uh, and we've got to do it in a way that's not this, you know, talking down to them or talking like, you know, lecturing them and all this kind of uh, negative feelings that they get or that they'll interpret. So we have to figure a way, a technique to do that. And that's what we're working on, because, because to me, it's a trust issue. We have to gain their trust at the same time. We got, in order to gain their trust, for, for them to listen to us and not 
look at it like they're being scolded or they're being chastised. Or, so it, it takes time. And uh, we're just going to continue to work on it. <laughs> I'd like to build on Sandy's comment about trust. And I, I think it's, um, I'd like to take it with a slightly different uh, emphasis, though. I think it's about building relationships first. So I think spending time together to get to know one another as people, uh, uh, how we show up as people and w what's exciting in our lives, what's of concern in our lives, to have conversations over time. To your point, it's not like dedicating two weekends a month, a year to do this. So it really speaks to a, a, a tough time contextually for us because everything is fast, you know, and um, all of us, have, I mean, I won't claim that for all of you, but you fall into it because texting, for example, everything is so quick and trust takes time. So we have a, a, a bit of a challenge here of how do we take the effort and the, uh, have structures to spend time together so that we're not about the task, we're about the person. So build the personhood relationship first. And I'm being taught that right now. I'm in the midst of uh, being in a mentor program, which allows me to work with somebody who's interested in the field of aging. And so often, things that I, I have seen when they set up mentorship programs, they're kind of what I call drive-by mentorship. Um, and so it's like, you do it, okay, we'll, we'll have, I'll have three sessions for you over the next six months and all this. And I think we all know intrinsically that stuff doesn't really work. So I'm now part of a designed program by some rather young uh, innovators who have talked, who've developed a mentorship program where it's over the course of four months, but every single week. And the instructions were, we were not to talk about work for the first four sessions of our, our time together. So we got to know each other about family, our backgrounds, you know, things that were challenging. In fact, she happens to be um, somebody whose mother was in an internment camp. And so this whole thing of just understanding ourselves. And so we've now started uh, our first session where we talk about um, career, you know, content and stuff. And I, I get to feel how different that is. And I've gotten to know her as an individual and, and likewise. And so um, I just think we did need a different model. Uh, and it's not this uh, quick few sessions, and it's not just learning about stuff. It's really being a person together. And, um, and I can remember be, having somebody who mentored me, not by intention, but by default. She was retiring from a faculty we were both on. And surprise, surprise, she's the only person who focused on geriatrics and gerontology. Nobody else in the faculty did. I was in community and public health, so at least I touched aging. So she said, Jenny, you're it. You know, she goes, you're taking over as I retire. And um, so, so what she did was she did give me some tips along the way. And 
uh, I was young and impatient then. I hated committing meetings. I just uh, thought they were boring. I, they were boring, but it was one of those things I said, I wish I could just tell them what I think. And she says, no. She says, you don't have that privilege yet. And mind you, this was like 45 years ago. Uh, I think a lot of people will speak up much more assertively today. But she says, you know, there's a, a time cycle here, and you can do that when you're about my age. She says, but, you know, I, I was like 28 at the time. And she says, you don't have that privilege yet, and you haven't earned it. And so I, I remember she taught me over time, and um, that's frankly the reason I'm engaging in geriatrics. But um, I, I just think it is about building relationships and spending more time at that, even in this fast-moving world. I am the luckiest person. About two months ago, my oldest granddaughter, 27, said, Grandma, can I come and live with you? Aww. And the, I've been very close to my family. They live within blocks of me in the outer reaches of San Francisco, but they live, you know, separately. And she said, uh, it's a little bit too much, you know, watching me and, you know, it's not quite enough room at home. So, and the homes are roomy, that isn't the problem. Uh, so, she moved in with her dog. And uh, it has been a marvelous experience so far. Uh, she is, she watches me, she learns, she listens. I try not to put more than one item a day in front of her, and preferably not more than th one every three days. I mean, like something you might be interested in this newspaper article, or uh, very, you know, hands off, which is what she needed, but at the same time, that I could be an example for her uh, because, you know, I get up at, you know, seven every morning and I have a day that's very ordered and I have enormous amounts of things to do with the park, but I also, as a person who's trying to retire a little bit, uh, I <laughs> I've gone back to what I did originally, which is artwork, and uh, I do a lot of collages and drawings. Uh, and so she watches, listens, and then she comes to me and says, Grandma, it's time for your walk. And we're going to, she puts a leash on the dog. I don't require one. And we go, <laughs> we go out and we talk. She's very much, as is her father particularly, into plants. And she's planting my house, and it's okay. I may not be able to see the trees across the street in a while. But anyway, it's a, but it is very close. And I know that I will have some of this with her younger sister differently. Two girls are quite different. And then that 16-year-old boy who knows everything. Uh, probably will take a while, <laughs> but you know, he did interview me, and he does, you know, he he watches and he listens. So it's it's a matter of very tight closeness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ah, I love all those stories, and you know, a lot of what you were each talking about it. 
it fits with the research on basically the, that if we can understand people as people beyond just the social categories that we put them in, you know, then, then we have more information to act upon. So it really makes sense that these close connections are, you know, can really be what drives really meaningful conversations. Then I have a, in some ways, big picture question for each of you, um, which was actually a question that Jenny, you inspired me about. Um, and I'm curious about all of your thoughts on, which is that everybody has moments in their lives where they face potential crossroads. Um, and you can't know what's going to happen when you're making the decision. And I'm curious if you could go back to talk to yourself in the past while you were making such an important decision, what decision would you go to? What age would you go back to talk to? Um, and what would you say? Sandy, do we want to start with you if you have thoughts on this? Well, let's see. Um, I guess in terms of that particular question, um, there is a point, you know, I went to UC Davis, I got my degree in nutrition and dietetics. So I was a dietitian uh, for at least 15 years working in hospitals as a therapeutic and administrative dietitian, working, you know, in a healthcare facility. Uh, but at a certain point, well, during that time I was doing that work, I also was volunteering in my own community. And that's when I helped co-found Kimochi, which is a community-based organization serving seniors and creating a, 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 a um, continuum of care of services for people who are well and healthy and independent to the point where they need supervision and need a support. So at that point, I decided to leave working for institutions and working in the community. And that's when we founded Kimochi. So that particular point in time was to me a, um, a, a change in where I was going to earn a living. Uh, so when you work into, in, when you go into the nonprofit field, it is absolutely less income compared to working like at a hospital. But I decided to do that because I was able to, you know, I was independent, I was not married, I was, so I was independent enough to be able to do that. So I, I made that decision and um, uh, have never regretted it, but at the same time, a lot of people can't necessarily do that. Uh, so, but because you have to make a living. So when you, when you, here again, it comes down to money. I had to keep bringing this up, but it's a reality. So, uh, but anyway, I just, I just know that that particular decision was something that I will always um, be grateful that I did make that decision. Uh, and then later in time, I had a chance to, I had an opportunity to go work for the city. So I had that opportunity for about 15 years to do that. That gave me the opportunity to understand how the city works and utilize that information, how the city works to bring it back to the community. Because I always believe that whatever skills and uh, wisdom that you learn in doing things, that you bring it back to your community so that it can thrive. Jenny, do you have thoughts on this question? My, my fork in life that I recall is that I alluded to the fact that I was on a faculty in a, I, I'm a nurse by background, I was on a faculty in the School of Nursing. 
and um, this opportunity to do something very different, uh, to come up here to San Francisco, uh, was afforded an option of uh, doing research that was in San Diego, where we were living. Um, and at that time, I think I was 28 or 29, and, uh, or excuse me, no, I was by that time maybe 31, 32. Um, I was a widow, and uh, the whole question of staying in academia or going to the unknown at that time. And I, as you picked up, I was really bored with the, the whole issue of, of, um, of committee work and stuff. And it was right around the time that students were also very fixated on their grades. So I'd have students who would argue with me over two points as to whether or not they got a certain score. And so that, that just didn't do it for me. <laughs> and, and, um, and so this whole idea of taking a, a risk of the unknown, and I had colleagues who were faculty. I had a tenure track position, and so that's something that's a little hard to come by, and especially since at that time I, I only had a, uh, I still had only a master's degree. And so um, it was either the unknown, which is coming up here to San Francisco to do some research at Omloc Senior Health Services in San Francisco, or to stay in this faculty position where I get my summers off, I had a little child, uh, and all of this. And so um, I, I just listened to my gut, uh, Sandy, as you said. I just needed something that had some more action. And, and have, being in academia just was not set up at the time for that kind of thing. So I basically got a U-Haul truck and uh, took my four-year-old, and here we traipsed up to San Francisco, and uh, the rest is history. I <laughs> but but I, 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 think, I think it's taking a risk and jumping into the abyss. And, and, I, and the same thing here is I left Onlock after 25, almost 25 years. People were surprised I left. They thought that I'd be there forever. But I had once again knew that I was restless. And my dear husband, who's in the audience here, I shared with him a couple of years before I left. I said, you know, something's going on inside. I just don't know what it is. But I don't think that I'm going to be staying for, for long. But I, but I don't know. So when I jumped and left, I had nothing. And so this was one of the things that he wrote with me. And, uh, and um, so he said, you know, we'll, we'll do okay. Uh, but uh, it was the ability uh, to take chances over something that your own soul is telling you. And it's like listening to that. And, uh, and sometimes you, it, it's not like the two-year plan, five-year plan. No, you know, I, I'm a person who jumps. So uh, anyway, but that's, that's what happened. I have to go back to when I graduated from college and said to my father, I want to go to medical school, law school, or architectural school, and I don't care even which one. And he said, oh, no, uh, you can become a secretary. And, I mean, I had graduated from Oberlin and, uh, with honors, and I thought this was a terrible idea, and I left home. I married a psychiatrist. I had the opportunity to have some good, uh, let's, we'll call it uh, psychoanalytic assistance <laughs> to help me get through the jump I was making. 
And my husband was drafted, and we came out here. I would add that the two doctors who were drafted with him, one was sent to Wichita Falls, Texas, and one was sent to Biloxi, Mississippi. We were sent here. I, if any of you come from there, I apologize. But anyway, we were sent here, and I could not believe how beautiful this place was. And I also could not believe how the women here had a freedom and to do things that from my community in Brooklyn, no thanks. You know, we just, we could not. And so I came out here and did this, became a teacher, and uh, eventually found, for a variety of reasons, ways into the work that I've been doing for 50 years. But the big thing was to say, you are not going to put me down. Mm -hmm. yeah. oh, I love all of those. And just as a young person, I find <laughs> very useful. Yeah. I love the theme of, of jumps that all of you just brought up, these big jumps in life and how how they were all also informed by the connections you had with other people and the responsibilities you had and sort of how to make those decisions together. So yes, that was very, I was thinking about decisions in my own life, so that was very helpful. Um, okay, so the next question I would love to hear everybody's thoughts on again is, um, the, the so from your perspective, what is something that's keeping people, for example, of different generations, races, or genders apart? Um, and is there a way to take away that barrier? And maybe this is in activism, but also even more broadly. We can go in any order again. Well, I always believe and will continue to believe that communication is the key to understanding. If people don't communicate with each other, I don't care what background you have, I don't care what ethnicity you have, I don't care what economic status you have, you have, you have to communicate. And it's, it's hard to talk about difficult subjects, but you know what, it's okay. And it is okay to disagree. It is okay to disagree. Sometimes people don't want to get into a, you know, uncomfortable conversation because they have to disagree. It's okay. But then from there, then we have to figure out there may be some compromises and not everybody gets what they want in terms of the, the argument. But um, to me, communication is, is really, as we get older, that is even more important. And when a younger person also, that needs to be emphasized to them too. You need to talk with your peers, you need to talk with your uh, elders, you need to just have a conversation. So. I think communication uh, in our society is really needed, uh, and I think communication can help uh, do some healing, uh, and I, I do think that people don't want to talk about the difficult subjects. I mean, because I still believe that racism, sexism, and ageism, ageism is alive and well in our country, and, you know, we have to we have to admit it. And a lot of people don't want to admit that this, these three things are still around. And we, but we have to work on it in order to take it away or to get rid of it. Uh, we may not get rid of it totally, but we need to talk about it. So the more people communicate, I always believe, will help the 
society. Could you rephrase your question? Or just to say that yeah. I got so absorbed in Sandy's <laughs> response that I don't know what we're her talking about. I understand. It's about what barriers do you see between people and how can we dismantle them? Yeah, the isms that that uh, Sandy brought up are, I think, are so so prevalent now. In some ways, I think we've all uh, seen there's been some permission uh, to uh, unleash this a little bit more for that that we see manifest. But we also know that that's always been there. And so for any of us in any of the categories we happen to be in right now that uh, people designate, we've all felt some of this. We've all, whether it's formal aggression or whether it's been microaggressions. So I, I think back to um, all these isms. And part of it is we've all been at the receiving end of it. And maybe we've also been at the giving end of it. but. The ability to think, when do you take steps to do something about it, is kind of a, a, a forks in the road right now. And for those of us who've made it this far, we have been receipts of the isms quite a bit. Um, you know, um, my being an Asian female, I, I didn't share that when I was at college, I was the only female on the Asian in the entire campus upper or lower. And, um, and so I, I, at that point, I was probably more of a curiosity rather than subject to the ism directly. But there's just an awareness. Each one of us have an antenna. Not that we wear chips on our shoulders, but we just are aware that these things happen, whether we're women in certain circumstances, whether it's the color of our skin, whether yeah, it, it's our age. And, and I can still remember being um, uh, diverted once my first academic position. I was, I was under 30, and I went into a, a line to get my parking sticker. And the person behind the window said, no, you don't belong in this line. You need to go to the student line. And I said, I'm faculty. And um, but so there's all kinds of things that you just have to kind of uh, understand and experience. But how we choose to respond to it and the timing of it, the context of it, is something that is a discernment that we all start to learn as to when you, you choose your battles. Uh, or you choose your actions, and sometimes you just deal with it. And I think a lot of us have dealt with it. Uh, but part of it is not to let them accumulate so much that it creates a self-doubt, uh, rather than recognizing. And, and I, how I've dealt with it is sometimes it's just not worth it. You know, it's it's just there, and you realize everybody's going through some of this stuff. So how much do you react to is a matter of timing and choice and and the degree of what that experience might be. I've already told you something of my background, and so let's just say that I came from a patriarchal home where I was told what I was supposed to think and what I was supposed to do, and it didn't 
sit well overnight. Uh, and so then I married a psychiatrist. And if there's anything that I learned from George, it was that he taught me to listen to my children. And he listened, and they would talk, he would, he would respond. And as this, I, I just simply, I had to sort of turn over a leaf and, and start again. But when I went into advocacy, which was in my mid-30s, um, I, the biggest thing that an advocate can do for herself and the cause is to listen. And so when people came, I'm thinking of a particular park in San Francisco, uh, uh, Sutro Heights Park is part of the GGNRA, and to listen to what the people in that neighborhood are saying, because they have some problems up there, uh, particularly brought on by the pandemic, people camping across the street from their houses, um, that if I listen and we, I, I work with Park Service people and neighbors and we're working out a program, I mean the U.S. Park Police helped to deal with the campers and drugs and other things that turned up in this rather small but very nice park. And, but when I listen to the neighbors and, you know, use their ideas that that's been, you know, that's how I've been working for 50 years, is in developing a park that started with San Francisco Nucleus, quickly jumped into Marin, and went like this, and people coming to me with, you know, could we do this? How do we do this? You know, that listening, what do you want? What are you trying to accomplish? And then being able to bounce back at them okay, how would you go about this? How can I help you? And this is, made, this is what makes my work possible. Well, I hope everyone was taking notes about that because we now have a to-do list of what to do next, both in terms of listening and adapting and being accountable to our actions, including of aggression, and then just being better communicators. I think those are great, great things for us all to keep in mind. Um, so I think we have time for one, one more question um, that, I, again, I'm curious to hear all of your thoughts about. So the three of you have all made remarkable impacts on the world through your advocacy and leadership and activism. And of all that you've done and accomplished, what are you most proud of? Sandy, we could start with you again. Um, I guess when it comes to policy change, um, in terms of working with the whole senior community and adults with disability community, to have a, a ballot initiative put on the San Francisco ballot and get it approved by the, ballot, by the voters by over 70%. That was something that we really were proud of. And two of my dear friends, Tony, <laughs> Tony and Marie, are here today. They helped make that happen. Danny, we can go to you next. I, I think 
It's been the nearly 25 years that I spent with the organization Onlock Senior Health Services in San Francisco, uh, which really started from a community perspective of need and assessment and listening to what's what's was important to have in a community for a healthy community, and having a chance to uh, operate um, <clears throat> and lead the the operations itself. But my parents benefited from it as well. My parents were not, were immigrants, and they were not um, they were not wealthy whatsoever. And the fact that the work that I was doing was something that they benefited from, as well as the community, as well as my brother. My brother had early Parkinson's and ended up being in our program. But to have this program that starts grounded in the community, moving to saying, this shouldn't be just in one place. This Everybody faces this kind of issue. This is universal to, and, and in general, this was for low-income uh, populations, but um, middle-income, high-income, people travel this journey. And so the question of replicating it, and so having a chance to test it out in communities, other communities of color, you know, in South Carolina, in El Paso, Texas, and others, to have it start that way and become a federal law that now operates, um, the program operates in 30, 31 states, and, and to realize that um, something could start from the community and change policy and affect so many people beyond the original population ourselves, uh, to realize this is a universal life experience where people will have challenge. And so uh, to have a hand in that, and then to benefit it as a daughter, as a sister, um, and to learn and to be exposed to so much, uh, the, the work that subsequent to Unlock to Me would not have happened had I had not had this experience. So um, I'm, I'm both proud of it and I'm, I'm grateful for it. I've been very lucky to be able to work in a field that feels a lot like Jenny's in the sense of expanding. After all, the national park system is more than 420 units across this entire country. And so I became part of that, and I learned about legislation and how we get legislation and how legislation is passed through, in this case, not only locally has to be supported, but also then has to get the congressmen and the senators to take it through and have be signed into law by the president, and, you know. But to, to have that be a living part of what I do, and then to be able to show that to others, we are celebrating our 50th anniversary, as I've said, and one of the other things, and I'm getting actually some ideas from this conversation, uh, of how to be able to imbue the people who are coming up in behind, and the, the, the young people, to know the powers of this democracy, and when it's working right, how it gets things done. I mean, we had 
a totally bipartisan uh, experience. Phil Burton was a wild Democrat from the eastern part of San Francisco. Bill Maillard was a gentlemanly Republican from the western part of San Francisco, and they carried the bills for this. And then this was picked up by a few different senators who came into office, and uh, notably Alan Cranston. And the idea that the American democracy works and can work and that you've got to do everything you can to make it work uh, in order to get done all the things that you have both talked about. Well, thank you all three of you for sharing the things that you're proud of and all the other pieces of wisdom that you've shared. I know I have learned already so much from our conversation here, and I am so looking forward also to conversations going forward too and, and learning from everybody else here as well. I think everybody in this room has perspectives to share and wisdom to share um, and different, you know, different experiences of life that they're coming, coming to this space with. So I'm really looking forward to learning from everybody here. But before then, let's give it up one more time for our amazing. This event was made possible by the generosity of volunteers, individual donors, and our sponsors. Rhoda Goldman Plaza, Wallace Annenberg Gen Space, Full Sleep, Community Living Campaign, Homewatch Caregivers, Modern Elder Academy, Scott and Warner Builders.